0: John DeFalb from John Sando's Bookshop in London. Our new podcast is with Colin Theubron. My conversation with him was entrancing so that it ran on, and we have in the end divided it in two. You can listen continuously, or you can break where you hear music coming in. It is the hills of Manchuria, of course. Even so, we scarcely even touched on many aspects of the book, such as the Russian expansion in the Far East after 1858 under moraviev amursky and the ports at the mouth of the Amur, Nikolaevsk and Dikastris, which were founded there. Anyway, reverting to the live stream, welcome Colin. Thank you. It is of course a delight to have you here in person instead of doing it via Zoom as we've got used to. I'm not going to list all your books now, but it is worth mentioning in particular, in relation to your new book, that you've written on China, Behind the Wall in 1987, Among the Russians, 1983, Lost Heart of Asia, 1994, Shadow of the Silk Road, 2006, and In Siberia in 1999. Your new book is The Amur River, Between Russia and China. Although there are a couple of small overlaps within Siberia, it covers new territory from the river's source in Mongolia to its mouth in the Sea of Okhotsk. It is an extremely long journey, about 3,000 miles?
1: Yes, just under.
0: Of which, and how much of it forms the border between China and Russia?
1: Uh, about uh, uh, <laughs> one hundred and ten 1,100 yeah. miles
0: approximately. It, It's also an extraordinarily arduous journey.
1: Yes, um, it was arduous in different ways. Um, The Mongolian part threw up particular difficulties because it was um, monsoon time and it was marshy. Uh, The Russian side um, sometimes, because it's so heavily fortified, um, produced um, police interrogation and the Chinese side, I really didn't know what it was going to be like because I'd never met anybody or read of anybody that had been there.
0: That Your division of it into three stages is interesting and points us forward. Will you tell us a bit about the Mongolian bit to begin with and the particular arduous nature
1: of that? The ammo finds its source in Mongolia. It's there, the little Onon River. Which is sacred to Mongolian people, and they call it Holy Mother Onon. And uh, it's very small there. It mar- rises in marshes in a part of Mongolia that is un- unfamiliar to most because it's mountainous and it's forbidden to travelers normally. So,
0: how did you get permission to I go there?
1: I just managed to get permission from a, an agent who has a, a branch in Ulaanbaatar, and he somehow secured me agents and two horsemen and a guide and I had nine pack horses and off we went but it's normally um, well even they said it was dangerous to be in treacherous to be in because of the swamps and we had to to sign documents that absolved us of all responsibility, absolved them of all responsibility for us. So the the,
0: the, the difficulty of permits is because of its of it being tricky and, and the, the dangers and responsibility, rather than it being a military zone or anything like that?
1: Well, there are about 5,000 square miles of it, and it is on the Russian border. So, uh, that is a contributing cause, I think, as well as the beauty of it. It's a mountainous country, and it's where Genghis Khan is buried. Hmm. And Genghis Khan is like a god to the Mongolians now. So, he's buried in an unknown tomb to the fury of treasure seekers and, and uh Arte You Arte
0: talk Arte. about going to not exactly look for it, but well you speculate on where it might be, but also this extraordinary remoteness i I want to come back to it, it almost feels as though it's about the most remote place on earth, the way in which you describe it uh, and, and then and then you fell from your horse,
1: yes, uh, it is very even by Mongolian standards, it's remote, and I think Mongolia's the second or third lowest populated country on earth. So it's sparse anyway and this is a very very uh, deserted, you might say, region of the country and was always sacred to Mongolian royalty. So ordinary people were kept out. The horse I had, um, yes, uh, the marshlands got worse and worse. uh, The horses floundered and panicked. Uh, even the two horsemen said it was the hardest journey they'd ever done and they'd throw themselves into their tent with their boots still on. But basically um, it, it was the terrain. The monsoons had been worse than usual and the the ground was treacherous and suddenly the horses would half disappear into bogs. So I emerged at the end of it with um, two fractured ribs and a bro- broken ankle. Um, and felt much better when the ground was hard under our feet at last. It seems, uh,
0: I mean, you, you, des- you describe the, the fall and, and your shoe coming off, mm-hmm. um, and that's in a manner of speaking quite funny because you, 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 well, you make it so because of it being a cheap shoe and therefore came off. Right. Um, uh. But it seems as a reader it's sort of unimaginable
1: how you. Managed to continue
0: with a broken ankle. It must have been well, agony. Well,
1: um, it's a bit crazy, I admit, um, and but I persuaded myself that the ankle was only sprained, and the ribs were only bruised, and continued. But I, I think, you know, uh, at my age, I was seventy-nine at the time. Um, you can't afford to lose a year of your life, you feel, <laughs> and, and I would have had to go back to London, find them X-rayed. Yeah. Um, very dull. Uh, lost a year come back, try it again, and Mm. I thought, no, I'm going to go on.
0: Did you get help along the way with it?
1: No. No, there's nobody to help you along the way, really, no medical facilities, certainly. Um, You just have to slowly trust that ribs get better, Uh, broken ribs once before, and I know they slowly get better, but they're hell, while you've got them hurting and um, you have to remember not to laugh or cough. There wasn't much to laugh about, <laughs> <laughs> but I coughed a bit.
0: And, and and the ankle? I mean, it must have been so
1: difficult. The ankle got seemed to get worse as the ribs got better. In fact, the pain from the ribs was masking the pain from the ankle. But it it slowly got better. And when uh, a month, two or three months later, I got back to London, uh, they said, well, it's healed quite well. Okay. I
0: mean, uh, it seems as a perhaps a silly thing to focus on, but it's so striking when when reading that anyway. Um, mm. um, so there you are in Mongolia, and there's it's uh, peopled by um, Mongols and also Buryats. Mm. The, 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 we'll, we'll come back to indigenous peoples um, as the journey progresses, but in Mongolia, the Buryats are they the. They've come south from Soviet Russia.
1: Yes, um, they are Mongolian people. Um, They came during the Russian Civil War. Um, They fought alongside the whites for a while, and they came south into Mongolia seeking um, a more peaceful and remote country. They were, in the end, mistaken, because they were persecuted as badly as Stalin would have done. And And now? Now, well, they're only a small percentage of the population, just 2%. But they are particular, um, they they, they seem to wield a clout quite out of proportion to their numbers in Mongolia, and I think it's, they think it's their native intelligence, (laughs) but one might say it's their culture. They were um, brought up in a more civilized Mm. or educationally advanced environment. Do you think that's true? In Russia. Yes, I think it is true.
0: Also, in Mongolia, the religious uh, aspect is interesting. The the remnants of Buddhism you've come across. Tell us about that a bit.
1: Um, Well, they're pretty faded in this part of the world. You'd find monasteries marked up on the large-scale maps and you'd arrive at the monastery and find there was just one monk there, perhaps. And he was away, usually um, uh, uh, celebrating a funeral, or the, the 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 little monastery had been deserted, uh, or it had burnt down, mm-hmm. or something had happened to it. So it looked on the map better than it was, mm-hmm. and um, the Mongolian sort of identity uh, is still rooted in Buddhism to some extent, and you find it even over the border when I crossed into South Russia um, that the Mongolian. Um, the, f- the feel of the of a Mongolian world continues along the Amur River um, for quite a way, quite deeply, into mm. what's today Russia. But, but uh,
0: the sense of, of a vital Buddhism is not there.
1: Not really. Um, there are little outposts of it. Um, I meant two or three, but even the great monastery of Tsugol which was perhaps the uh, the deepest penetration of, of Mongolian Buddhism into Russia. Even that, when I arrived, an enormous monastery um, just had one resident monk, a learned monk with um, rather a strange sense of humour. I found. Did, did that
0: surprise you? The, 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 I don't mean the strange sense of humour, which again is quite funny the way you describe it, um, but the the the. the the absence of, of Buddhism? Were you, were you expecting to find more?
1: I was expecting to find more, um, and certainly in a huge monastery like that, yeah. um, and to just to find one monk, and one or two sort of um, lamas who would come in, actually married men often, which is not the normal mm. principle.
0: Did it sadden you?
1: Monk. It did a bit, because um, it was a grand tradition, and there uh, are one or two m- monasteries that make you realise what it might have mm, been mm. Um, where the sacred texts had been recovered, in spite of all the Soviet persecution mm. of these peoples. Um, they had really, um, they'd really suffered, uh, and in Mongolia too, in the 1930s, 17,000 monks were were executed um, under 17,000 mm, under san, who was Stalin's sort of henchman in Mongolia and was just as ruthless as his master.
0: When you refer to him in the book, I I was completely ignorant of of him. It's Mm. it's shocking, of course, all these things always are. Um, Now, we haven't so, so far spoken of the river. In the first part it's tiny and narrow. By the time you get To the Mongolian border, how how big is
1: it? Um, It's not big. It's fast flowing because of the um, the monsoons. I should say, only mm, might be a hundred yards across, but probably less, probably sort of eighty. I was at the border post and was taken to stare at it with the commandant of the border post, the Mongolian commandant, and he said, people do drown there. I think it's probably the speed of the river, people mm. trying to cross, he said. And
0: we've already, by this stage, you've covered, how far is it, from from the source to the Mongolian border?
1: Oh, I don't know, not much, um, in proportion to the rest of the river. In proportion to the rest, and no, just looking at
0: your map, at your st- uh, probably 300 kilometres?
1: Yes, like yes, quite likely.
0: Oh. So then you cross the border into Russia, but you, you can't cross where you want to because of permissions. So right. you have to go up uh, further up the line to where foreigners can cross, and right. then you double back.
1: And then I have to double back in a long loop, um, rather pedantically, back to where the river itself crosses into Russia. Um, in fact, only a few hundred yards from where I had been a, f- a few days before, and have d- denied permission yeah. on the long side. And um, then the the river then starts to move um, roughly northeast, I suppose, um, towards uh, Shilka, where it becomes Shilka, which is um, its confluence with a, a Russian river. And then it doesn't become the Amur proper by name until it reaches the Chinese border mm-hmm. to the east.
0: So st- it's still c- called the Shilka, and the um, You describe it as being solitary and untouched. I think it actually is further, even considerably further down than we are yet. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a striking aspect of it, that
1: there is no fishing and no boats. That's what's strange, and that did surprise me. Um, Not so much on the Mongolian side, but you enter Russia. um, And for many, many miles, um, I can't really compute, uh, certainly for 500 miles, it's a sort of winding, um, smallish river um, with very few villages on it, no fishing boats, you don't see one, and it's not until it meets a place called Sretensk that it, um, say in the 19th century, became a a passageway for all the European overland traffic, European Russia to overland traffic going eastward to the Pacific, would disembark from whatever it carriages it had been taking or sledges, and um, for the first time the ammo becomes truly navigable, and there, up the Pat, they would make their way uh, to the mm. to the Pacific. So it, it's a sort. It appears to be a neglected river. It's a little bit polluted. There's gold mining, illicit gold mining, sometimes um, along the banks, but it's not until. It reaches Nurchinx, Sretinx, this sort of area um, in, al- almost in the river's central course a bit earlier, that it actually becomes navigable at all and actually appears to be noticed. But is it, the absence of f- f- fishing
0: because there are no fish or because they're not allowed to fish? It seems improbable that there are no fish there. Um, even if it, it does
1: is. and is, it just doesn't seem to be in the culture. And um, oh. the Mongolian culture, by and large, of course, is for cattle and uh, and horses, and, it, and the fishing doesn't seem to enter into it very strongly. Hmm. It's interesting that it shouldn't be because there are fish, um, not right. as many as there were or as there should be, um, but they exist and still uh, quite poor communities don't seem to be taking advantage of hmm. them.
0: Good place to go for a fish, mm-hmm. by <laughs> the hand of it. Um, so when you when you get to Nerchinsk, um, we start meeting. I suppose European history, um, and you've you mentioned about getting to Sretensk, that the, the wh- wh- where travelers from, from uh, overland travelers will m- meet the ri- river and it becomes navigable to the Pacific, um, and and. You you take the boat there, and it's the first boat you've seen in fourteen hundred miles. But before getting on the boat, let's just go back a little bit to Nerchinsk. Um, Will you give us the the historical context and significance of Nerchinsk a little?
1: The obvious significance is that it's the first meeting. Place of Russia and China and there uh, they have to come to some accommodation with one another the Russian Cossacks had moved across um, uh, across Siberia 3,000 miles in as little as 60 years this is in the Um, mid 17th century Uh, absolutely yes By and towards the end of the 17th century they have arrived in the Nurchinsk area having sort of slaughtered or suborned all the small native peoples along their way and then suddenly they meet this formidable empire of which they knew nothing, which is China. And China knows nothing of Russia. And they, when they come to have to make a, some sort of peace agreement together, they have no common language. Peter the Great is back in Moscow as a teenager, um, only just ascendant to the throne, who is um, just eager ready to replenish the coffers of his very depleted empire. On the Chinese side, they are simply eager to get rid of these uncouth northerners who have appeared out of the blue there. And so they they meet um, in eventual accord, the Chinese wanting um, to get rid of them and to establish that the Amu is theirs, uh, the Russians above all wanting commercial concessions or trade with China. And so they do eventually come to an elaborate um, uh, peace treaty Engineered not by anybody that knew anybody else's language to speak of, um, except for two Jesuit priests in Latin, in Latin, and a learned Pole on the side of the Russians. So they this um, strange treaty is conducted in Latin, and uh, uh, it's uh, only quite a long time later that the Chinese and Russians start to disagree about the Russians because they have ceded the whole of the Amur River to China, which the Chinese imagine was theirs anyway, um, they begin to think, that, sort of point to dishonesty among um, of the, of the Jesuits, or to the intricacies of geography which haven't been understood. No. They are dissatisfied with it and tried to get away with it. But for the moment, in 1689, after the Treaty of Nurchins is, is signed by these two powers, uh, in the words of the Chinese ambassador, I think he says, um, and so we agreed to live forever in harmony. This
0: is, uh, I suppose, one might as well dot the I here, that it, without any reference whatsoever to any of the indigenous peoples no. on, either, no. on either part. No, they're completely no. ignored yeah. by yeah. both
1: sides. Yeah.
0: The other thing that's uh, interesting about Nurtin's convict history, its relation to the, s- the silver mines, a-, a immense... Um, web of, of silver mining and, and, and a sort of clearing house of some kind for uh, convicts. And the yeah. in where I've come across the Amal River is th- in talk, talking about the, De- reading about the Decemberists. Yes. Um, suddenly th- these people from the West being dumped in uh, Chinsk and places like that. Yes. Did 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 you? you, I mean, I suppose they're not on the Amur particularly. But did you come across traces of Decemberists?
1: Well, I wanted to, um, but there's not much uh, immediately on the Amur that I came across. I wanted, in particular, to see the um, silver mines where um, uh, one or two of the more prominent aristocrats were exiled. Um but i looking on the map, I realized what a vast <laughs> silver mining empire that it was, and this was miles away almost on the chinese border um where these people had been incarcerated and and set to work and so i I didn't go um I just realized the immensity of the territory that had once been silver mining and was now finished
0: yeah, and uh, there's a sense as you write that so much his history has just been eradicated by waves of 20th century horrors.
1: Yes, um, that sort of history, the 1825 one goes back to the December risings, um, is sort of seems so minor now compared to what yeah. was laid upon yeah. this land, above all by Stalin of course,
0: yeah.
1: who, who liquidated all the Chinese along the river um, between about 1937 and eight either deported them or liquidated them and of course the horrors of the Gulag Mm. uh, haunt every town here.
0: Which uh, and you, well we'll come back to that but it obviously came across traces of that, well more than traces but over and over again. Um, At Stratensk um, where you get on the boat you're quite relieved to get on the boat because you've been detained there. I suppose you're quite used to that sort of detention.
1: Um, not entirely. I've usually evaded it, or avoided it anyway. Um, uh, in this case, I think I was in such a, an obscure place that the local provincial police were immediately alerted and wondered what on earth this old man was doing there. I must have seemed like a, a rather enigmatic old fellow with a limp by then, and rather bad Russian, completely ill-equipped for spying, looking as if he was travelling like a gypsy, (laughs) which has normally been a reasonable passport um, away from too much attention. But eventually um, they came for me and I was put into a sort of five or six-hour drilling um, by these police who really didn't understand what I could have been about. But I was scared because I thought they were going to throw me out. They threatened to say, we're, we're sending you back to Chita, which is the provincial capital, and they'll send you back to London. And I, I began to think, well, this is the end of my journey. That's the worst thing that you fear, really. mm. it is not that, at least that I fear. is not so much you're going to be detained or arrested or anything, but that you're going to be thrown yeah. out um, or your notes are going to be confiscated. Yes. One's always thinking in terms of a book, I suppose, um, yeah. for which personally you're prepared to sacrifice rather a lot.
0: I suppose the detention itself just becomes part of the, the narrative.
1: In a way, you know it's always the same with these things you're a bit like a journalist, um, yeah. it sounds unromantic, but you are, and you're sort of um searching for copy yeah. in a way like any other journalist yeah. Yeah. and and copy can include nasty incidents, yeah so just as you're being beaten over the head by <laughs> somebody you're thinking, "Well, I can write about this yeah. um, it it gives you a strange distance from yourself, mm. oddly enough um. You're travelling as if there's two of you. There's mm. the one who's maybe having a rough time and there's the one who's gonna write about it. Yes. And it allows the one who's having a rough time to be a little bit alleviated. It's quite because helpful. there's this other yeah. element. Yeah. It's not like travelling for pleasure. Yeah. Um
0: It seems a good moment to ask what you travel with, because again, there's these immense long distances, and you're hopping into a bus and off a bus, in boat, taxi, this, that, or the other. You, you haven't got large suitcases. haven't.
1: i got one small rucksack Before travelling I lay out everything I think I'm going to need and ask myself, do I really need this? And the answer is usually no. Um, in this case, um, I had to allow for fairly cold weather, and for mm, lukewarm weather anyway. And I, I um, don't take books, which I normally would. I take language manuals, which you can read endlessly. Mm. Uh, so it's a very, very tight. Um, it's a tight rucksack and but small.
0: M- may I ask what you do take in it? <laughs>
1: Well just one change of everything honestly. It sounds, if I emerge, disgusting. I don't think I usually do. But um, it just seems so so amazing that you managed to do this long,
0: Mm. such a long journey with so little. Mm.
1: Well I I think you know you can do it and people that um, go on these long treks um, and don't want to be burdened uh, with tents and so on. They find they can actually go with not not so very much. You don't need actually nearly as much as you think you do.
0: Um, but you need something. You, you, you need paper also. You uh, you which you is heavy.
1: Small notebooks in my case because my writing is minuscule. Right. And um, almost illegible even to my wife. <laughs> so um, so that takes care of that. A mm. language manual or two you can read forever. Um, mm. Polishing up your. So half-forgotten Mandarin, or whatever it may be, and uh, the rest is just clothes. <laughs>
0: On we go, on the river, on the boat, um, where again there are historical companions you invoke. Chekhov um, is the primary one perhaps.
1: Yes, he's almost the only one. Um, The Russians themselves very rarely came to this area, I mean not educated Moscow intelligentsia. Chekhov came um, on the way to Sakhalin Island. It's a bit enigmatic as to why he wanted to do it. Um, Sakhalin was a, a convict island. Chekhov himself was in poor health, but a youngish man, he, he crossed all Siberia. Um, he picked up in this area of Sretensk and um, continued along the river to the Pacific. And he, um, he was remarkable, really. Uh, he, he fell in love with the whole place. Um, and uh, loved its sort of beauty and savagery almost mm. and always was astonished by the liberalism. He kept saying, oh what liberalism in his letters mm. home because people were speaking their minds and old women it's, were it's smoking pipes w- um, and things. It astonished m- him.
0: Mentioning there that the, 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 the context you're talking about is is uh, 19th century convict territory or an exile territory. People mm-hmm. have been exiled to Siberia and there was no death penalty in 19th century Russia. No. That no. is, w- w- which of course m- casts its illumination in a way over those who sent to Siberia. Um, once we, you, 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 you travel by boat for a bit and then you, you um, to a place called mm-hmm.
1: Um
0: And then you're on the train, you're then on the Trans-Siberian.
1: Yes, um, it was possible uh, to take the boat as far as you could from Skatens to the Chinese border and then you had to disembark. And I found somebody to take me over the mountains to where the Trans-Siberian Railway shadows the Amur for a long arc to the southeast. And I got off at Skavirodino because I wanted to see the Chinese border as close as I could and the Russian uh, fortifications Mm -hmm. along it. So I got a permission eventually from the FSB who were the descendants of the KGB and uh, were happy to me to see this place because it's called Al-Bazin. It's a historic Mm -hmm. place for Cossack culture. And um, suddenly you are looking across from Russia at the Chinese border with the enormous um, Mountains facing you are deserted and looking along the Russian border. You see nothing but barbed wire fences Mm. and raked earth between to portray anybody crossing and watchtowers at regular intervals and nobody allowed there Mm. except you're able from one or two points to look at it um, as I did, but um, it's it's an interesting exercise because um, you realize suddenly that the Russians have returned to the river. That Treaty of Nerchinsk we were talking Mm, about mm. um, has disappeared, and the Russians are back. Um, There was a a very belligerent um, 19th-century governor-general of East Siberia called uh, Moravyov and he simply, in the age of the Chinese Empire's decline, um, took a flotilla, a mile-long flotilla of armored barges, and simply took the territory back. And the Chinese could do nothing about it.
0: Um, the Chinese did nothing about it um, at the time, but the, um, well, we'll come back to it when they started doing mm. them. Um, um, but at Albazin, where you, mm. where you've gone to have a look at the river, there's a the fortress. Is, is that, it was is that that's a Cossack fortress? Isn't it, it was
1: a Cossack fortress. It was the last to be destroyed by the Chinese. Before that, they, if you like, forced the Russians to the negotiating table at Nerchinsk. The Cossacks had moved in there, um, and about 800 of them in, in the end, and the Chinese besieged them and virtually wiped them out.
0: And, th- and that again is important. This is the Chinese wipe- wiping out the Russians Russian, at this point. Ru- Russian the invaders, in Russia. yeah. they
1: thought, who had come recently on borders, which the Chinese considered to be to theirs, <laughs> and yeah. the local tribespeople, um, they paid tribute to the emperor in Beijing in Peking.
0: And they were by treaty Not, with theirs.
1: Well, they were, point. there was a sort of agree- agreement between them, between mm. the Chinese and local um, local peoples in that whole area north of the Amur. Mm. Um, that they were tributary to the Emperor.
0: Having, having been to Albazan you, you're then back on the train for a long way mm. to um, Blagoveshensk. The stretch that you cover by train my understanding of it is that what you, in fact, it's what you just said. That all the way along that stretch, which is uh, almost a thousand miles, is a the
1: the whole stretch, the whole border between Russia and China, and is one hundred and ten thousand.
0: Yes, um, but the the, the uh, one thousand sorry 100, 1, 100, 1, 100 1, 100 miles. Uh, This this stretch. Um, the Russian side is all barbed wire, so you can't get near it. Right, and the Chinese side on that this on this stretch is all uninhabited and mountainous. Um,
1: not entirely uninhabited, but it's um, it's pretty comparatively deserted. To, to its later later stretches.
0: But you 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 weren't tempted to cross over to the Chinese side at this point, because
1: uh, not at this point. Um, because there's nothing to see. Well, there was less to see yeah. um, than than later. I thought um, I wanted to follow the river um, sort of consecutively. I didn't want to go back on my tracks no. and follow both the Russian and Chinese side um, together. Mm. So um, I crossed over at Blagoveshchensk. Um, which is the first, probably, city of any size on the Amur at all.
0: It's now. It's now that things start getting quite complicated, and and um, the book shifts gear in a way once you get to Blagoveshchensk. Um, I suppose because you're meeting more people and you're in cities. Yeah. That, um, tell us about Blagoveshensk.
1: Well, the interest to me of Blagoveshchensk immediately was that you're just half a mile away from China. Here's Blagoveshchensk, which was founded in I think 1854 and uh, which is by Siberian standards, East Russian standards, quite old. Um, it's quite a mellow city and you look across at this slightly sort of static and sleepy um, Russian city and on just over the river is the Chinese city of Heihe which looks like a sort of spanking new skyscraper city, all its skyscrapers still topped by working cranes. Um, Thirty years ago, this city, Chinese city, was just in uh, had it was a village, a small village, and now it's overtaken the population of Lagovishinsk, well, two hundred thousand people. So you've got this vision um, of the Russians on one side looking across at the Chinese side seeing it sort of glistening like a rather taunting um, uh, symbol of opulence and their side is stagnating. So there's a tension there because the, the ruble is it's such a bad state against the Chinese currency that the Chinese hardly bother to come over anymore and work in Russia or not as much as they did because the ruble means so little. And where they do come over is with Chinese merchandise, and that's carried by Russians. Um, They purchase it, um, well, they don't purchase it, they really just gather it up um, from entrepreneurs on the Chinese side, um, carry it over. Um, They're paid about, I don't know, $10 a trip for this. They take it to the Chinese market um, in Blagoveshchensk. So it's all Chinese organized, mm-hmm. and the only um, people in between are these poor Russians. They're just called bricks or camels, they have this unfortunate name. And many of them are just um, some sort of middle-aged women, and now they take it to the to the Chinese market. It's difficult for the Chinese to do it themselves because the Russians have made it um, just hard bureaucratically for the Russians to, to the Chinese to frequently cross the river and it's difficult too for the chinese to own stalls in the russian market the chinese of course get around it simply by employing russians to do the carrying for them and in the market they go into official partnership with a russian mm. and continue work just the same so all the goods are chinese even the t-shirts labeled russia are made in china and of course the chinese uh, are dominant and the russians hate them
0: and i, I that's the, the, what I was going to come to, the, the, the sense of the contempt um, expressed by all the Russians you meet towards the Chinese, contempt, hatred.
1: It, it's a sort of contempt. Um, it's, a, it's a mitigated contempt because they acknowledge that the Chinese work harder. Mm. They tend to say they work harder but they can't be trusted and they clo- have closed hearts, mm. as they say. But um, the two peoples are so different. I'm most reluctant to talk about, you know, cultural yeah. um, cultural identities. Mm. But we have two very different mm. peoples meeting here, um, and very little attempt to learn each other's languages, um, or, as I could see, to mix together.
0: And and that's been going on historically along that border for. As long as the, they've seen one another there, yes. And th- um, and then after the grimness of Blagoveshchensk, the, the decayed nineteenth-century, um, decayed Soviet stuff that you see, um, you go uh, you cross over to the Chinese side to Heihei. Um How do you cross over? An, it's not on a bridge. There aren't bridges. There are no. Un, 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 Uncompleted
1: bridges? One, uncompleted at the time I was there, uh, over the entire length of the river, which shows how much distrust there has been. I wouldn't say is grim exactly. Um, It's mellow and rather stagnant. But you can cross over on an ordinary little ferry, um, either Russian or Chinese, um, probably Russian-organized. It arrives in Heghe after simply crossing the river. The river by this time has not the Shilka or the Onan, of course. It's become the Amur proper. Um, And it's had a change of gender. It's no longer a (laughs) female river. It's the Russian little father, Amur. Or on the Chinese side, as you cross, it becomes the Heilongjiang, the Black Dragon River. And I arrived in Hehe, It was carnival time. They were celebrating Golden Week, as they call it, which is the celebration the Chinese have of their foundation by Mao Zedong of the Republic in 1949. And so there were all these tremendous celebrations and a sense of activity and and uh, business still going on. So it was quite a shock after Baga Vashem's and It
0: sounds extremely energetic. It's energetic um, and
1: also there were plenty of signs of wealth, of, of large expensive cars yeah. in front of apartment blocks. And of course all this activity in um, uh, in India all this dancing and, and um, celebration would be in honor of a god um, in Brazil it would be a festival a fiesta but um here in uh, in China um, they were advertising china gold all the dancers yeah. uh, so typical but but um full of full of commerce too. and
0: and, and the, the contrast is sort of surreal after what you've come from and it's so close
1: yes because the russians who used to go over when the ruble was stronger and trade um, have abandoned it uh, there's a large free trade zone so called which the chinese instituted and there's nobody there uh, so all you see among you know hordes of chinese is the very occasional slightly bewildered looking mm. russian
0: and uh, the um it's here or near here that there's another important historical thing, the, the Chinese offshoot of the Boxer.
1: Well, this was Blackie, back in Blagoveshchensk when the Boxer Rebellion in China, um, the uh, kind of civil war, began to, or the Russians feared it was going to spill over into Russia. Um, they took fight And the large Chinese population that uh, Blagoveshchensk had at that time, I was talking about the year 1900, um, was slaughtered. Um, Over 5,000 and and later many more were simply deported, um, marched away by Cossacks to the banks of the Amur and um, either shot or bayoneted or simply pushed into the river and they couldn't swim. And this is something which the Russians have... Uh, tried to erase from their history, I'd say. In the Blagoveshensk Museum um, it's ignored. Uh, there's just a one canvas which shows um, Cossack soldiers defending uh, an apparently beleaguered city.
0: And the he- and the Chinese take on it a half a mile away?
1: The Chinese take on it, um, half a mile away is Heihe, which is full of um, Full of activity. But you travel a little further along the river by bus, which I began to do, not knowing what this was going to be like, and you come to Aigun, which is the site of the second treaty, which, which the Russians forced on the Chinese. And there, uh, at that treaty, the Russians took back uh, the whole of the river up to their side. What
0: date was the Aigun Treaty? This
1: was. Um, 1858. So
0: that's Moravia Womerski. That's
1: Moravia Womerski who uh, forced it on the Chinese. Um, It's what the Chinese call an unequal treaty and they've never rescinded that definition of that treaty. It's been sort of formally agreed that the border is now between the two countries is now the Amur River. But the Chinese have never gone hell hog on that and they still say that that treaty was unequal in the way that the British treaty was mm. at Hong Kong's so and all the old imperial predators. And mm. um, those were unequal treaties. And of course, the uh, you know the British have given back, and the French their concessions. Only mm. the Russians mm. have never, um, never even suggested or contended giving anything back um, from those enormous lands that they usurped in the late 1850s.
0: Well, the, these. We, we, again, we'll come back to those lands a bit. The, for for the moment, you're on the Chinese side, and you travel for a long way on the Chinese side. Yes, what's I'd that say like?
1: perhaps seven hundred miles is different. Um, I'd expected. I'd never known anybody who'd done it, so I hadn't a clue what it was going oh. to be like. I'd heard rumours that it was bristling with arms, like the Russian side. Was um, it? No. Absolutely not, um, I couldn't see anything much. Um, uh, what you did see was white watchtowers along the river, but but spaced at quite long, long intervals, nothing like uh, the Russian side, and nothing like that sort of paranoia that you sense uh, when the Russians are thinking about Chinese infiltration. So you go in Rickerdale buses um, along the Chinese shore, you find that it's much more cultivated and occupied than the Russian side. A uh, sort of wheat fields and maize and um, vegetables in great huge fields up mm-hmm. to the horizon, and uh, a feeling that um, things are a great deal more organised and rather more prosperous. Mm-hmm. The towns all might be have been built in the same moment. Typical sort of six-story um, street tar- uh, buildings, flat blocks with perhaps shops below, stretching along street. Gridan of streets, mm. and uh, not, not rich by Chinese standards, but um, a good deal more organized seeming mm. um, than the Russian side.
0: A sense of people living their lives I- in an ordered way. And
1: well, a sense that the Chinese so often give of, of being industrious, yeah. um, of, of getting to work and making, making things work if they can. Yeah.
0: Did you enjoy travelling along that Chinese stretch?
1: Um, I don't know if I exactly enjoyed it. Um, My Mandarin's very bad for one thing. I had fewer, um, my Russian is better, neither any good, but um, my Russian is better than the Mandarin and sometimes I find it very hard to understand what people were saying to me. Um, I was travelling with a a Chinese who had been Sort of allocated to me almost by a Russian friend on the far side, who said That's if you don 't have a chinese friend you 'll be murdered or cheated, so he knew this old Russian fellow, a uh, chinese fellow who who joined me as a sweet man called Liang. He was out of work and rather sad, but he loved eating with me and traveling and um so I, I was with him and which he was helped. helpful he was helpful yeah. just for enabling one to speak mm. more and um, and getting some insight into a single Chinese individual who was a little bit typical of his generation in as much as he suffered for mm. Chinese politics. Now he was, His father was arraigned in the Cultural Revolution and um, bullied and tortured while his six-year-old son, this man, um, was forced to watch. Then during the one-child system um, was the time this man was marrying so he was only able to have one child, uh, a single girl who was distant from him geographically now and obviously living her own life and then his father got Alzheimer's and he had to look after him he was the eldest son and then the sort of Confucian uh, ideal Mm. um, which persists Mm. Uh, he had to continue to uh, take care of his Mm. father and give up his work so in a way he was rather a casualty Mm. and he was um, I think uh, sad mm. for that, uh, I, I, a sort of rather depressed mm. um, man, but so he loved the holiday with me as he took <laughs> it to be, and we'd eat together and a bit, get a bit drunk, yeah. and we'd um, roll back to our funny little hotels, which were usually um, sort of ten dollars a night, and rather drunk at night. <laughs> and But he wouldn't mind losing our way because he, he had a little pedometer, he was anxious okay. to do as many footsteps as he could because he had high blood pressure. And so um, he was—he uh, was a sweet companion. I came to like him very much. Mm. In this
0: region, you're—you're you're in Manchuria, yeah. Um, and you talk about finding people t- who might speak Manchu, which is mm. fascinating.
1: Well, what
0: what relic is? I mean, what? happened, what is Manchuria now?
1: Well, this is what's so extraordinary. This was the last great dynasty of China, of course, the Qing dynasty, and um, these were Manchu, and they weren't um, typical Han Chinese. Um, They were invaders, effectively, and um, the language that they spoke, Manchu, was the sort of language of the aristocracy, and it simply disappeared. Um, It was disappearing Late, long, you know, late in the Manchu dynasty's mm. ac- Qing dynasty's actual hegemony, so it it vanished, mm. and um, not quite. Uh, there are peoples who speak it, but terribly few. They say sometimes that only in mainland China there are about twenty people that speak it, and one of them was this man in a place called Dawujia, who was um, learning, relearning his own language. Effectively, he had learned it from his parents. During the Cultural Revolution, of course, he had to keep quiet that he could speak Mm. it. Um, He was considered not ethnically quite Chinese. He was Manchu. And in this little place, there were one or two like him um, who were still clinging on to their Manchu and relearning it.
0: And of any curiosity to, to other Chinese there, or is it a- absolutely no interest to it? Uh,
1: not much interest yeah. I think, and it wasn't done to be interested in it yeah. for a long period of their history. Um, you know, there was the reaction against the Manchu um, by Republican China, and then there was the Cultural Revolution, yeah. and uh, there's quite a sort of ignorance about it I think.
0: And yet this vast swathe of territory, which in a manner of speaking was Manchuria, is Manchuria. Um, yes, which well, the Manchu
1: Empire was uh, as large a stretch as the Chinese Empire ever became, I think, under any dynasty. Mm.
0: But most of it was uh, then annexed by r- the Russians under Moraviev Amursky.
1: Well, all the lands to the north of like mm. the Amur mm. were, were seized by him mm. in the mid 19th century. But the uh, Manchuria itself tends to be the sort of what they call the great northern wilderness. To the north of, um, of Beijing, if you like, of Harbin, around Harbin, up to the Amur River, and that's routinely called Manchuria. Still, yes, yeah. um, well, rather casually, and not really by the Chinese. It's yeah. been given other names of provinces and so on. But it was at one time, um, particularly in the 1950s, it was Mao Zedong's um, industrial um, heartland. Um, mm-hmm. He he wanted to turn it into the a, a kind of um, uh, uh, a fulcrum of, Russia, of Chinese industrial power, so a lot of um, uh, plants went up there, industrial plants, and large state farms to supplement them, to feed them. But all that began to fade away, and as we know now, um, the um, the real uh, pulse of Chinese power is down in the area more to the south of, um, of um, Shanghai and mm. Shenzhen and so on.
0: You then cross back over the river to um, the Russian side at Khabarovsk Um, and we're now really in the Far East Um, and the Khabarovsk is distinctive also for being a confluence with another immense river that's coming up from the south, um, the Usuri. There must be many confluences of other rivers coming into the Amur that you've not remarked on but here tell us about this one what when the Usuri meets the Amur?
1: Well um, probably apart from the Songhua which is further to the west which is the most polluting um, and major uh, arrival of, in the Amur of a tributary river the Usuri is the best known and and the most powerful and it um, it was famous, I think. There are probably two things that people um, relate the Amur to at all. One is the Amur tiger, of course, mm. and the other is a, a, a conflict on the Usuri River between Red Guards and Russian border border patrols. Um, this was during the Cultural Revolution in, in the late um, uh, the late six, 1960s. And there's a tiny island called Jinbao on the Osuri, which became a scene of conflict. Um, The Russians regarded it as theirs, Uh, the Red Guards invaded it and regarded it as theirs, and there were some very ugly skirmishes. And after this, um, much to the lament of Russian veterans who regard the river as um, soaked in Russian blood, it was quietly ceded back to the Chinese. in, in without any fanfare at all, there's yeah, a
0: rare instance of the Russians stepping back on something. Yes,
1: um, one has to say what they stepped back from was little more than a sandbank with some willows on it, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was nothing much, yeah. but it was a concession.
0: Um, Kabarovsk itself, um,
1: uh, wh- what. Is that a big city? Yes, it's the largest on the Amur, at half a million inhabitants. Um, Khabarovsk is um, the point at which the Russian, the Amur River, uh, leaves the Chinese border and for about 600 miles flows northeast to the Pacific.
0: So there's a complete change of direction for the river. One thinks, in a sense, it's just going east, 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 but at Khabarovsk it does a left turn and goes north. And now you're in a um, different, altogether different region. One of the things that I find fascinating here is I think of Arseniev. Mm-hmm. Um, and correct me where I'm wrong here. I th- think that for Soviet children, Arseniev was uh, like Jack London was mm-hmm. for Russian for American children at another generation so all that call of the wild stuff and then was made was in a sense brought to the west um, by somebody even further east to the Kurosawa film that yeah. incredible film of Dersu Uzala
1: yes, one can hear still Arsenio calling for Dersu Uzala yeah. in the film um, that sad ringing tone when Dersu Uzala had left him I think, and and gone back into the Taiga, the Russian forest. Um, It's a strange and rather sad history because um, uh, one doesn't know quite how Dersu Uzala died, but he left uh, Arseniev's house in Khabarovsk, I think it was in the city, and um, goes back to the wild. And there he dies, uh, uncertain quite how perhaps murdered but what had happened unfortunately posthumously was that Arsenia himself um, was indicted um, by the Stalinist regime as being you know uh, uh, in in some way uh, I'm not sure what the precise charge was anyway he wasn't a good a good communist hero and so you had him uh, sort of eradicated or there was an attempt Mm. at eradication of him his house has disappeared, I think, under the in tourist hotel oh. in Haborovsk. But there's a tree planted to him, which is, seems rather an uh, ephemeral memorial um, on a street of Haborovsk. Otherwise, uh, and of course, he's now been rehabilitated, but there was a time when he, like so many other fine figures, um, seem to half disappear under the oh, yeah. start in this oak.
0: But the, the the landscape that he describes the territory of the of this stretch of the and, and I suppose he's talking about beyond the Amur there's this great swathe of land beyond it between the, as the Amur turns north between the river and 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 the ocean but but one has a sense also when you're talking describing it that that here it is a different territory altogether, that's the, the, wild, there are the tigers, a few, and bears, mm. and um, and indigenous peoples, um, back to Dersu Um What trace is there of indigenous peoples?
1: Well, um, they again uh, were meant to be part of um, the Soviet dream in the past. Uh, they were meant mm. to eventually be turned into Homo Sovieticus, they'd say, into ideal Russians. They are tribespeople, of course, fishing people along the Mm Urmua largely. And they're still there, the Nanai in particular, the Ulchi, and others. I was um, mainly uh, sailing among the Ulchi people um, with Mm -hmm. Russian fishermen. And they're, um, they're mainly rather sad. I think they felt that their culture was subsumed. Um, there are those who are trying to revive it a little bit. Um, they have a bear festival, the mm. Uchi in particular have a reverence for bears, but that's been disallowed and I don't think it'll come back, partly because they killed the bear during the festival, mm. reverently. Um, imagining it was returning to its ancestors and they were partaking of its um mm. of its glory in some way. So, um They're not in a very happy state. On the Chinese side, too, they've tended to be um, absorbed into Mm. the Han population. Their museums, I visited one there to them, um, which are perhaps curated at least at a lower level by native peoples. But it seems these are tiny peoples, of course, in some cases only a few thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, so they seem to have no chance. And how are they regarded
0: by, by the Russians?
1: Well, always, I'm afraid, as, as inferior. Mm. Um, even those who are half-integrated with them along the Amur, uh, the Russian fishing villages, and there, there are some of these native fishing villages all there together. Um, the Russians are... are Friendly enough, I found, an accommodating to them, but there's no, certainly no feeling that um, that they are special mm. in any way, mm. and so inevitably they are beginning to be, um, uh, with some intermarriage, absorbed.
0: Yeah, you you um, you're taken by um, somebody who sounds absolutely wonderful in a way. Uh, he ranges a, to take you to the towards the mouth of the river Alexander, and they pick up a couple of others on the way. Um, whether they're mafiosi or poachers, I, or mm-hmm. but the, um, you, you describe the poaching a bit and uh, of fish of um, and their resentment at concessions being allowed to. Indigenous people. Does it, is that right? Some the, a
1: disc- little. Yes. At one instance, um, I uh, I took a chance on that Russian companion you mentioned. I got him on the internet. I'd never done such a thing <laughs> before, but he advertised himself as guiding people on remote fishing trips in uh, northeast Siberia. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll try it, and I met him. And he turned out to be terrific, uh, typical, you might say, typical Siberian, uh, robust and um, very independent and rather outspoken and sometimes bad-tempered and heavily drinking. And um, he was great because he knew somebody called, uh, called Igor who did know fishing villages and poachers um, along the Amur And so that was interesting in this, because the ammo changes, it becomes enormously wide, sometimes Mm -hmm. three miles across, and these little villages are quite hard to access. So it was splendid to have these two men um, as as guides and friends. Mm
0: now that we've reached the end of the journey I think there's a couple more general questions I wanted to ask you what
1: did they make of you <laughs> I don't know is the short answer um, you always always think you know but I don't um, I don't know what I made of myself in a way hmm. because I've never really um, confronted the fact that I'm as old as I am and here I was in my 80th year Um, doing this uh, tough journey in a very remote part of their Mm. world. And I think they didn't know, the authorities and the police didn't really know, couldn't work me out. Mm. Russians themselves tended to accept me, I think, rather well. I think they were privately um, a little bit uh, astonished Mm. and um, maybe thought I was a bit foolish to be doing what I was doing. But largely they were pleased. Uh, as the Russians usually are, that you're there and they can uh, show you their village or their town and share their hospitality and, above all, their vodka. (laughs) So there was a feeling among the Russians, certainly um, I thought that one was welcome, Mm. although um, clearly very strange and a little bit inexplicable. (laughs) On the Chinese side Um, Very hard to tell. You're so obviously foreign. They assumed I was Russian. Yes. Um, Except that... Was um, that
0: difficult, the presumption that you were Russian?
1: Uh, No, not particularly. Um, Very occasionally somebody would address me in Russian, but not much. Um, No, they tended just not to feel that you couldn't... First, that you couldn't understand their Mm. language. They assumed, and very often I couldn't. And um, at other times, well, the companion I was with um, would announce who I was <laughs> to my embarrassment to anybody that was going round. Mr. Tubalong, as he <laughs> called me, um, he said, you know, he, he fell off a horse in Mongolia. He's a little odd, but he's very old, but he can use chopsticks, <laughs> and so on. He, he would have these long conversations about me as if I wasn't there. <laughs> and the Chinese kind of would be amused. Yeah. And I found ordinary Chinese were were... Pretty charming to me. I didn't. Uh, I think weren't. that um, the
0: sense of astonishment is going to be there with any reader you have. I mean, it, it's uh, absolutely startling journey to read about, it's, uh, fascinating in so many ways, and I hope that the book does extremely well. Um, th- there are so many aspects to it. The indigenous peoples, of course, but. Also, the gulags appear, the different cities, the different cultures, Buddhism, shamanism, we haven't talked about any shamanism that you came across particularly. Um, Mysterious incidents of you being asked to take pictures to validate fake ceramics, all sorts of oddities and little diversions um, kept together by the backbone of the river. Um, It is available £20, Um, so do let us know if you'd like a copy. Meanwhile, Colin, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you.